This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. This week, we're going to talk about how hunting regulations impact wildlife populations and how people often overestimate the impact that hunters actually have on wildlife. But before that, we're going to talk about a few news stories that we found relevant this week. In Nebraska, a bill was introduced that would transfer money out of the state game fund into the general fund, along with transferring money out of the habitat fund and state parks fund into the general fund. The bill in question is part of a bigger plan from Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen to divert cash from multiple state funds to help pay for his planned property tax cut. So far, the bill has faced opposition from multiple directions. Many of the funds in question generate money by user fees that are supposed to be dedicated for specific uses, such as the state game fund. After this bill was introduced, the Sportsman's Alliance put out a call to action in which they encouraged hunters to contact Nebraska senators to tell them to oppose the bill or at very least remove the sections of the bill that had to do with the state game and habitat funds. Senator Steve Erdman responded to some of these emails by mocking individuals who lived out of state by saying they can't be a constituent of Nebraska if they live out of state. He said this despite the fact that the fund in question is largely supported by non-resident license sales. But the most surprising part of Erdman's response is that he said the following, quote, I will take every dime I can from Game and Parks because it is the poorest managed agency in our state. End quote. Well, it's obvious that Senator Erdman doesn't care about non-residents who support that fund, but if you're a Nebraska resident who wants the Game and Parks Department to continue to be funded, you might want to let him know how you feel. I'll put his contact information down in the video description. In British Columbia, the first cases of chronic wasting disease were recently reported. Chronic wasting disease, or CWD, is the fatal disease that has been expanding rapidly throughout the United States and Canada, becoming a top concern of wildlife managers. The disease was found in both a hunter-killed mule deer buck and a road-killed white-tailed doe. Both instances were not far from the U.S. border, where that district in Montana saw 10 positive CWD cases this year. British Columbia began sampling for the disease in 2001 and has continued to increase sampling efforts until present, having tested over 8,000 deer and elk samples that were all negative until now. This means that there is hope that they've caught it early, but even knowing that, managers have still been unsuccessful in stopping the disease. The best tools and science available currently have only helped in slowing the progression. So CWD appears to be a part of the landscape for the foreseeable future. In Alaska, the state has updated the regulations for the Western Arctic caribou herd to reduce bag limits for all hunters. We talked about this in a previous episode that there were several proposals to completely exclude non-residents from hunting multiple districts that are home to the Western Arctic caribou herd. The result of the meeting where those proposals were heard seems to have resulted in a compromise. The subsistence hunters will realize a reduced bag limit to 15 caribou per year, only one of which may be a cow. This is down from the previous limit where they could hunt five caribou per day. For non-residents, the change resulted in a new special permit area where 300 bull-only permits will be offered in the Kotzebue area. This will decrease the non-resident pressure in that area as the past has seen around five to 600 non-residents per year. The Kotzebue-based wildlife biologist said, quote, the reduction in cow harvest is the single most important thing we can do to help the Western Arctic caribou herd, end quote. Alaska managers face a lot of challenges that many agencies do not. The landscape they manage is extremely vast, the wildlife span huge areas, and are difficult to count and study. They deal with cultural aspects of subsistence hunting, of people who literally survive on wild game, where the decisions of limiting hunter harvest can have a lot more significant impact than changing regulations on hunters in the lower 48. But this will serve as a good transition into our deeper dive, where we're talking about how most states try to manage wildlife. 
What are we talking about? Well, I thought we could talk about this kind of one of the fundamental concepts of wildlife management. Yeah. Uh, which the reason I'm bringing it up is because I feel like in a lot of the conversations we have and other people have about hunting regulations, yep. people like to think that, or it seems to me that a lot of people imply that hunting regulations will have these drastic impacts on wildlife and the resource. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they can't. It is certainly possible right. that they can, but the goal, and I think most state agencies do a pretty good job of accomplishing this goal, is to have those regulations not impact the resource that much. Right. So uh, what I kind of wanted to talk about is the idea of additive versus compensatory harvest. All right. Before we do that, the audience needs to understand my background is an accountant. Your background is an undergrad in fish and wildlife management. Yeah, emphasis on the undergrad part, though. That's well, another but, disclaimer. I, I don't want to, I am definitely not an expert on this, and this will be a gross oversimplification. I know, but, but you are a great interpreter of really complicated things to how they apply to me or our audience. So, additive versus compensatory. Right. E explain that so, so people know. The basic premise is that you have. A, harvest, a harvest of an animal, right? And you have a baseline of the population. Yep. So you could have, you know, from one year to the next, is that population going to remain stable or is it going to change? Okay. So if you have additive harvest, that means that the population is going to decline over, over a period of a year. So okay. each year it's going to go down if the, the harvest right. is additive. With compensatory, the idea is that you're, you are still killing animals, but those animals would have otherwise died from other causes. So the idea with hunting largely, and again, there's always exceptions to the rule, but largely wildlife managers are trying to keep wildlife populations stable. Or, you know, and obviously we have different goals in different districts, different right. states. But if the goal is to keep it stable, the idea is to keep the hunting harvest compensatory. Right. So, and it's obviously it gets kind of subjective, subjective and gray because that harvest could be, you know, from weather, severe weather and, you know, weather right. changes year to year, or if there were happened to be more predators on the landscape yep. or whatever. So like, but the idea, keep the population stable. Right. And so, they, they do this. This is why they do it over uh, most of their models are five or 10 year running averages. Correct. Because otherwise you'd have yeah. some pretty dramatic fluctuations. Yeah, you can definitely have, and, and obviously the way you look at it can be different depending on the species depending on, I mean, obviously with something like upland birds versus elk or moose, like you're going right. to have drastically different responses and upland birds can, you know, have a dramatic effect or a much more dramatic uh, effect to the population. If there's a severe weather event or, you know, if some environmental factor changes yep. from year to year, but then I think that's also with my, or uh, not migratory, but well, migratory and upland birds. That's like one of the best examples of how they, how harvest can be largely high. compensatory. Right. But yeah, and you can have high harvest and have it still be compensatory. And this understand that the big population drivers are still things like weather and uh, what oh, man, disease. I'm, yeah, disease. Just like habitat. these habitat. Yeah, and habitat and weather are two of your biggest biggest factors on you know, what's going to happen to that, to that population in a given year. Yeah. But those factors are a lot harder to control for. Like you We're, can't, you can't right. control weather habitat. We can impact and control to some extent. We can, 
you know, increase the quality of habitat. We can prevent habitat loss. We can improve habitat. There's all sorts of things that you can do. But I think the, the, the thing that this kind of drives me crazy is so many times when we're talking about regulation changes, people imply that it's going to have this dramatic effect on the population or the resource. But realistically, most often we're arguing about hunter satisfaction and just their social regulations. Like very right. often when we're talking about hunting regulation oh. changes. And and I'm not saying that that's not important. It is very important. Very important. But it's just like trying to to get the the rhetoric right about mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Like, well, if you're saying that these regulation changes are going to hurt the wildlife population, you're just saying that the state agency is doing a horrible job. And mm-hmm. which a lot of people will argue that the state agencies do a horrible job. Right. I think in the scheme of things that most state agencies do a phenomenal job. Yeah. Like when you look at the big picture compared to what it could have been, what it has been, state agencies do a pretty good job of keeping wildlife on the landscape and keeping populations relatively stable. Yeah. They don't drive things into extinction. Yeah. Hasn't happened. Yep. So and I, I kind of had that. Uh, there's a personal learning example for me. I didn't do the research. So I've been critical of Montana's, uh, deer hunting that hunts mule deer in the rut with a rifle. Right. Because I know it's hard on age class. And I was of the assumption that if you get to a low enough buck to doe ratio, it's impacting the herd. Well, a couple of biologists called me and was like, Randy, as long as we're above 10 or 12 bucks per hundred does, it's not, it, it is, the herd's not going to decline. Now, if our doe numbers and fawn survival and recruitment into the adult population starts declining, then we've got an issue. Right. And so that was just me looking at it through a social lens of, one, I want to see a different age class. I don't care if they're, you know, record book bucks. I just thought that you need older bucks to have a healthy herd. Yeah, and, and the nature of it is year and a half and two and a half year old bucks will breed those does pretty successfully. Yeah. And keep pregnancy or you know, pregnancy rates up and just that yeah. yeah. So, so that that's that's I'm an example of that social lens you talk about. Cause I'm still struggling with this idea that we're gonna hunt mule deer as hard as we do in the rut with a rifle. Even though I've been shown so many studies that say, Randy, you say you're worried about the resource and that's the reason for your concern. I've probably been shown four or five studies and I've read them and I leave those studies saying, well, I still still think we need a more diverse (laughs) age class. But I've had to accept that my, my lens through which I see that is a social lens. Yeah, well, and I think with that example, it... And again, there's exceptions to the rule. And then mm-hmm. with that example, I think it's, it is possible, but generally with the buck harvest in particular, like you're not, yeah. you're very unlikely to impact the population where you have a better argument is with doe harvest. Right. And sometimes we do in, you know, especially in Montana have pretty high doe harvest right. and that's where you're more likely to enter into the terrain of additive harvest where right. you are going to impact the population. Right. But these managers largely, depending on the area and the district, are still attempting to offer 
a, you know, a hunting season and offer opportunity while maintaining those populations. So that's where it gets a little trickier, but I think, I I guess my biggest worry is that people get so caught up focusing on these things. On on the social parts. On the social. Well, yeah. And for like, when you, when we're talking about the issue of mule deer decline in general, like just like range wide mule deer decline. And that's like, to think that hunting is the biggest factor that's responsible for this, like I think is a dangerous path to go down. I think like, is it potentially a factor? Yes. But is it a giant factor? I don't think so. And maybe that's just my opinion. But I think when you focus on hunting regulations and you're not worried about things like habitat and this changes to the landscape, barriers, you know, roads, fences, just increased like habitat fragmentation, more, you know, oil and gas, more renewable energy. All of these things are also a factor, and in my opinion, a much bigger factor than what our hunting regulations say. So I feel like so many of us go down the rabbit hole of like, oh, you know, why are we killing so many mule deer bucks? Like, well, okay, whatever. That's a social, in my mind, that's a social argument. It's worth having. I think we should Should discuss it. We should discuss it, but you're, ignoring the bigger factors if you're if your true goal is where is you know the total population of mule deer and that worrying about that decline you're focusing on the wrong problem yep the, in my opinion again no, so it, it's I, just like I, uh, i've uh, come to the same conclusion marcus and how to message that is what i've thought about for years is uh, these social things become and, and I agree with you that we have to have these discussions because we're talking about people, right? Yeah. And people have different ideas, different values, different things they want out of it. But I'm guilty in my example I gave of trying to blend my social view and justify it with science. And there's no justification for my social view based on the science. Right. So how do you message that to get people to understand that the bigger problem isn't this where we change regulations up or down or more liberal, more conservative. That is this little piece. This is the big piece of habitat and disease and everything else. Right. Our discussions over here at this little piece really fall apart or, or aren't even a big issue to people if we double the number of meal deer. Right. Which is why I continue to say, if you want to double your draw odds, put twice as many mule deer or elk on the landscape. Yeah. Because then that baseline we're talking about from which the compensatory versus additive calculation enters. Yeah. There's enough to go around. Yeah. Yeah. And just to boil it down like a little bit further, like, you know, this is again, like an intro to wildlife management thing like people talk about carrying capacity yeah and so i mean carrying capacity in theory is like the amount of animals that a certain landscape can support without you know damaging damaging the resource basically the forage so a lot of times with again if we're using mule deer as an example your your limiting factor is likely going to be winter range like that's going to affect your carrying capacity and the nature of it too is like we very probably never are actually going to use a true carrying capacity in wildlife management 
anywhere Never. because it's there's so many humans on the landscape that and the way that we impact things and the way that we care about things carrying capacity like it's a social carrying capacity it's not you have to take into all these other fact take into account all of these other factors outside of just the the habitat and the landscape because there's this like social preferences from ranchers that you know they might be eating or getting in your haystacks or eating your forage into your alfalfa fields whatever it is so that's a big factor um, we have things like predators that we obviously manage for and like varying levels of predators on the landscape that's going to impact it like up and down one way or the other how we care and manage about predators um it's just to think that i don't know it's just it's a lot more complicated than people like to right. to think. And I, I think part of what leads people there is in the North American model, one of the seven tenets is we shall ma- it shall be science-based management. Or, or it's management with the best science available, I think is how it's worded. Uh, and so people think everything we discuss in these arenas is science. Yeah. No, it's social. I we, What do we have? Depending on the year, they say we have 140 to 160,000 elk in Montana. It goes up and down. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember where I read it, but some scientists is like, if we really were talking about science, like only science, <laughs> the carrying capacity of Montana is probably over a million elk. Right. So we're operating at, you know, 10 to 15% of what the true carrying capacity is. That means Every other part of that is a social discussion. Yeah. Not a scientific discussion. So, and it was a person talking about how we maybe have led people to some of these places where we have these debates uh, based on science because the North American model makes it, would make you believe that every one of these is a scientific discussion. Right. Well, Well, it's really a social. Yeah. And science obviously is subjective too. It's not like, it's just cut and dry always. And there's, there's social science too. Yeah. But I think this, we have to take humans into, in, into account. And so that it, it's still, you know, there's still a lot of research and there's a lot of peer reviewed articles that take, like are talking about social sciences and, and just, you know, human preference. Like it's just a na- the nature of the beast. Like we are, we are a part of the ecosystem, whether we want to admit it or not. Like we are, it's we're here we're here to stay the things that we've done to the landscape are here to stay like we've changed things drastically Uh, and so it's just like we you can't ignore that you can't ignore that in terms of um you know regulations but yeah i think the overall my overall goal is just to like get people to understand that when we argue about hunting regulations and i think it is good to discuss and argue and and figure out what's best but just like know that in the scheme of things, wildlife managers do a pretty good job of maintaining stable populations through hunting. I mean, like with hunting being largely compensatory, right. that's the goal. Um, and there's sometimes the goal is to have additive harvest. Sometimes they want to reduce elk numbers in a given area right. so and people can disagree with that or agree with it. So that like, sometimes the goal is to have additive harvest, right. but it's just, just remember that a lot of times we're arguing about what makes us happy, what, what you know, what's going to be a provide a quality experience for a hunter, and right. not, and then Montana at least a lot of our issues are focused between public land and private right. land issues because certain regulation changes are going to make the quality of hunting on public land much worse, right. and so that that's a that's a big factor. But again, right. the resource as a whole, it's. Uh, 
it's not being impacted as much from those regulation changes. Right. I mean, Montana, just like a lot of the West, we went through four or five years of hard drought, and then the Northern Rockies gets a brutal winter. All of those things have the populations in a bit of a decline. And hopefully, you know, the, the goal is that, that these 10-year averages, that hunting is not going to prevent it from coming out of that decline. No, it's, so. yeah, again, so uh, hopefully people <sighs> recognize that habitat and recognizing that weather and things outside of our control, weather, disease, habitat, those are, those are the big drivers. Yeah. Hunting is like you're, you're operating on the margins. You're, you're, you, you can change things, but, but you're, you're operating on the margins. You're just, you're fluctuating it to a much less, or, you know, it's a, a much smaller degree yeah. than, uh, so any, anyone watching very Often in our office, when I make a comment about a regulation, I can see the look on Marcus's face like, Randy, you realize that's a social thing that you are advocating for. And now I know his expressions well enough that it's like, yeah, I know it's a social thing, but I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I do care. But I, uh, the point of that is I find myself in the what you're explaining here I find myself in that situation a lot. And people's ideas matter. I sat on a panel yesterday with seven people, and all of the folks who are managers of either Habitat or the wildlife said, it's not a, it's not a, a wildlife management problem. It's a people management problem. Yeah. And, and not, they didn't say problem. It, it, it requires people management solutions. Exactly. Is what they said. And that was consistent on everybody. It's like, we know how to, if you want more of this or more of that, we can do that. But that's not socially acceptable. Right. So we have to take the social considerations and overlay that. And very often that drives where we end up as long as we stay within the sideboards of not hurting the habitat or the, the herds. There's a pretty wide space there for all these social issues to be discussed. They they did a really good job of presenting it that way. Yeah. I, I feel like that was one of the first things I learned, like, going into Fish and Wildlife, like, you know, intro, first year. They're like, if you're going to be a wildlife biologist, you're going to deal with people more than you're going to deal with wildlife. <laughs> and I think that was, at least it was eye-opening to me. Yeah. I don't know how many people felt that way, but it's just like, you have this idea of what being a wildlife biologist is. Oh yeah, I know I'm just going to count animals and like, yeah. you know, decide how many we should harvest and whatever, you know, no, I, you do that, but largely your job is social in nature. Uh, if you're doing it correctly, in my opinion, like yeah. you're going to have to deal with people issues and, and worry about a lot of social issues. So, yeah. uh, but yeah, I don't know. I hope, hopefully we, uh, it's, I think it's a valuable right. discussion to have at this time because a lot in the wintertime is when a lot of states put out their new regulations or proposed changes or whatever. And not that it'll probably change how, you know, what, how people feel. Uh, but I agree with you that our wildlife managers have kept us pretty well within the boundaries of sustainable herds with the fluctuations of weather and disease. When we're doing this arguing inside, don't do the Randy thing and try to justify all your personal positions based on science because a Jim Heffelfinger might send you four reports to say, Randy, I hear what you say, but you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jim. I, I appreciate that. I didn't want to hear it, but right. it's, 
it, it, it's good to to I think have to realize that though that we're talking about social things more than we are scientific and biological things. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if that was a little bit of a rant, but it hopefully people rant. learned, I learned it was a great, little Marcus. bit of something. But yeah. Yeah. Thanks for doing it. Oh, yeah. Thanks for joining.